Welcome to episode 163 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. We've got a great back catalogue of previous guests there so please do check that out. But we have a great guest this week and someone whose book I have just read. And... And it's a very good book, I should oh, say, as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, this week we're chatting with the awesome Nick Harkaway, who uh, writes speculative uh, thrillers, I suppose, kind of really um, you know, unique, uh, yeah. imaginative stories he writes. Um, and also, we should probably say, because he, he talks about his dad a bit in, on the podcast, he's the son of the late, great John le Carre, um, and that obviously had quite an impact on him. Yeah, I mean, he talks about how... Um, you know, he, he he kind of wanted to break in without that being the reason that he broke in, in a way. Yes. So yes. Um, he talks about how he sort of tried to manoeuvre that. Um, yeah, and but, he went into kind of the screenwriting side of things first. So he's, 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 he's written for a number of different formats and, and some really interesting insights into everything. Yeah, no, definitely. It's a really interesting chat. He's a really fun guy to chat to and he's got yeah. so many great ideas. And just talking to him about, if you've read his book, Nomon, uh, you'll know that that is an extremely ambitious and complex novel that works, you know, which are, there's some of the, sometimes these novels are extremely ambitious and they don't work, but no one does. Uh, and he talks about sort of the, the journey and the difficulties with writing that. Um, and he also tells us about Titanium Noir, which is his latest book, which is the one that I have just read and enjoyed. But that's enough from us. Uh, we'll get straight into after a quick advert for our writer's notebook. But before we get into it, I just wanted to mention that uh, if you're listening to this on the 2nd of June, you can come to Chimera Festival tomorrow, third, Saturday the 3rd of June, and watch us do a live recording of the podcast with the brilliant RJ Barker. That's at 3.30pm at The Pleasance in Edinburgh. It's a free event. You do need a ticket. You can get it at the link in the podcast description. And you can come along and ask RJ a question or just come and laugh at us. With us, Marco. Oh, sorry. With us. With us, yes, absolutely. Um, but otherwise, we'll get straight into it and we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. On with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. 
And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because I know, obviously, you grew up in a literary household, so I don't know if it was always an ambition. No, I mean, so I, I always loved telling stories, you know, but I didn't... No, I, I started... When I when I was at university, I wanted to do... Um, either environmental politics or um, something around Eastern Europe. Um, I, I left and I got a job in the film industry, really just to kind of you know, be the be the first thing that I did because it was exciting and interesting. And because I couldn't, I was, I'd sort of debated whether I was going to go on and do more academic study. And I actually couldn't face being in a, an educational environment for a longer period of time. I was like, I have to be in the world. Um, so obviously I went to the most down to earth, <laughs> sensible environment i went and worked in the film industry which is completely nuts and um no and then i wanted um I, after i'd done that for a few years I, I i started doing film scripts and i was reasonably terrible at that but i did that for quite a while you know so so i came to writing a novel in whatever it was 2006 quite elliptically mm-hmm and so i mean you you, you said there that you started out sort of in terms of writing, in terms of writing screenplays and things like that, what what was it that, that drew you to that? Was it because you were working in the film industry and you thought... Yeah, it was right there in front of me. And mm-hmm. and critically, also, it was something my dad didn't do, or at least didn't do very much of, um, you know. And so I thought, well, that's great. You know, then I can, if I'm going to tell stories, I can tell them over here in this space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just everybody will be delighted and there won't be this kind of, uh, there won't be this conversation. I mean, inevitably, of course, you know, that was nonsense. Conversation follows you wherever you go. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that was that was my sort of self-delusion at the ripe old age of whatever it was, 20-something, 26, yeah. 27. And so what, you know, how, how long did you try sticking it out at the screenwriting before you said, I'm going to I'm going to turn my hand to novels? I So, I mean, I, I, if you take the sort of whole time um, rather than, for example, suggesting that I wasn't a proper writer until I was a bit better at it, it's nine years. Right. Um, and and I existed in that sort of virtual industry space where you get commissioned, you make a bit of money, the commission falls through, you do the next thing, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know hilariously the myth always with the UK film industry is is that um, you 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 don't get paid as much as you would in Hollywood, but you get to keep your soul. Um, <laughs> my experience was that you know your, your soul got trampled either way but in the uk you just got paid a lot less for the pleasure <laughs> of feeling sort of soiled in your basic self um no i mean and that's really unfair right i mean the, the uk film industry makes amazing stuff film and tv industry makes amazing stuff um but uh it's not always easy for people to access and the conversations are not as artistic and highfalutin as the industry's self-presentation would have you believe 
Mm. So, yeah. so what what sort of stuff were you trying to pitch and trying to write when you were writing screenplays? Was it similar stuff to what your books were? Or was it radically different? <laughs> you mean, was I going into producer's office and w- w- watching their heads explode? <laughs> I mean, kind of. Um, no, I mean, so when I wrote The Gone Away World, part of the point of that was that I was doing all the things you couldn't do mm. in, a, uh, in, in a film script. I mean, it was long, it was mad, it was sort of, multi-generational it was strange it was visual effects heavy if you know from a film context yeah, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and there was lots of backstory um really more backstory than front story you know so it's absolutely infuriating as a film project and indeed uh there is a, a brave man who, who has the film rights uh <laughs> and i i've i've not seen um what the uh what, what what the scripts look like um i'm fascinated by what they've done but uh i haven't uh haven't been part of it um no, what was I pitching? I pitched a story uh, about escaping from a uh, collapsed, slightly fascist United Kingdom by train through the tunnel to France. Uh, and rebuilding the train was basically a, a sort of um, a work of love. It was an act of humanity. And putting the train back together was a community of people. And they were they, they made music together and they ate together. And there was a chef involved. It was all about food and sensation and so on. And I, I, that, I still think that's a, a good project, actually, post-Brexit. You know, and then I'd, I had another one which was about uh, using social mathematics, the six degrees of separation to solve a murder. Um, and the conceit is that, um, you know, you, you, you ask the question, do you know anything about this crime? And you ask and you get people to ask their friends. And, you know, sooner or later, someone does know something, you know, by definition, if you can get the message to propagate. What that also means, though, is that whoever actually committed the murder sees you coming before you know about them. It's like a radar pulse, you know, mm-hmm. except um, you have no defences. So there was, you know, so, so that was quite interesting. And that's actually, in retrospect, probably the most ridiculous thing to try to do on film. <laughs> you know, it's such a difficult thing to portray yeah, visually. Right. You know, it's a really interesting idea that I think I would balk at now and I had absolutely no idea how to do that. And I tried really hard, you know. And I mean, and people were interested, but also kind of rightly wary and said, you know, this is impossible. Um, it does feel like British TV in particular is kind of is starting to take more risks maybe than it did maybe 20 years ago. I think there are things like devs, which I, I can't really imagine an older BBC having getting, gotten involved with. You know, it seems to be putting more feelers into kind of like speculative genre work maybe than it, it as opposed to just like another period drama, which is I always kind of think of when I think of British TV. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think so. I think there is a, a slowly an ever greater acceptance of speculative fiction in the UK. It's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I am not academically able in this particular discussion. Um, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not properly versed in the literature and what people have said about it and so on. But the impression I have is that here, um, you know the 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 dislike of speculative fiction comes from the well i mean from the very beginning really you know when when um cp snow and fr Levis squared off over hg wells um and it just doesn't really get better mm-hmm. and the you know and the science fiction and fantasy worlds become uh a refuge for people who are broadly disapproved of by mainstream society which makes it worse you know in terms of the acceptance of of the stories Meanwhile, in the States, you have this moment with Philip K. Dick and so on, where the counterculture and the mainstream and, and the literatures kind of collide in some way. And there's there's 
an intersection there of ideas and culture which somehow produces something slightly different a slightly different attitude so they seem to be uh, to my eye they seem to be slightly ahead of us in that conversation and certainly the conversations in general that people uh, are having around the stuff that i've written the, the the american perspective tends to be less bothered about what shelf does this book go on and yeah. more interested in you know what's the underlying political idea what you know what are you what are you saying uh, you know are we comfortable with what you're saying are we uncomfortable you know but whatever it is you know the, the, there's a much greater sense that the first stop is to engage with the concept rather than to ask you know how is this classified and i have no idea whether that is a universal experience or whether that's just me I think it is, it is true. There definitely does seem to be a wider acceptance of of sort of genre more generally in in the mainstream in in the UK and the US nowadays. I don't know if it's just because people that were into that sort of stuff are now sort of growing up and so there is well they run the world well exactly exactly that's <laughs> look at thing. marvel you know the biggest films now are superhero yeah. movies just, yeah exactly kind of, i suppose know. it could be something but, i think well i mean i think also you know the thing is that actually in the 90s you could still say i'm going to write a book about the human condition and i'm not going to include technology because that's not part of the discussion it's a distraction mm-hmm. you could still say you know i'm not giving my characters mobile phones because that's just unnecessary but now if you do that in 2023 if you say oh we're not going to have we're not going to mention computers we're not going to mention mobile phones you're writing historical fiction nothing yeah. wrong with historical yeah, fiction yeah. but that's what you're doing you know you cannot any longer lay claim i don't think to the idea that you can write a human story and ignore the contemporary technology because you know what it comes down to is whenever you write you know is is in its by its own terms modern nobody thinks of themselves as living in the past you know there's probably there's probably a book to be written about i don't know sort of medieval siege catapult engineers kind of thinking they're living at the forefront of <laughs> technology you know i mean but genuinely you know everybody believes they live in the future not the past yeah, yeah, yeah. no absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. um so so with the gone away world your your first book um you you wrote that i mean what was the, what was the road to getting that one published did how did you find an agent and, and that sort of thing i i did uh, i was convoluted it, i mean not convoluted it was actually very straightforward but i did i did sort of exactly what you would imagine i i um didn't want to be you know i the first thing was that i knew london publishing like half of the people that i would submit to had on one level or another sat me on their knee when i was growing up and i didn't want to have that affect what happened with the book and i knew it was going to but i wanted to delay that for as long as possible so i i spoke to uh roland phillips and i said you know roland how do i do this i don't want to be traveling that road but at the same time i can't avoid it and roland said well you need to talk to patrick walsh um and you you sent in the book and just get on with it and so and roland um called patrick and said someone's going to send you something um and i'm not telling you anything about them and so patrick read the book without knowing who this lunatic was um and said okay this is mad and he he loves wild strange beautiful things patrick is one of the most interesting people to talk to and you and watching as his client, sort of watching him go out into the world to source projects to find somebody to write about, kind of looking after elephants and you know these extraordinary things that he ha- he wants to find the interesting, the strange, and the human, and apparently the elephant. 
um you know and so he said i'll take this on and you know from then on it was just a question of letting patrick do what he does best i mean that was you know that was that was it and it's so it's a completely unrealistic path into publication but it was the best i could do you know but i mean i mean you say that but it was also the fact it was read blind that that must take a lot of the kind of pressure or the expectation or whatever off that and you have kind of gone in as 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 much as any other person would I suppose at that point yeah I thought well no I mean because yes but no so so yes he's reading blind but at the same time you know Roland was was um a sort of senior publisher you know he wasn't nobody so you know there's a there's a solid there's a solid flag to say pay attention but I mean you know agents read unsolicited manuscripts that's you know that's part of the gig and and you know you you see it all the time people fish something out of the slush pile and say wow you know this is special um it just takes a really long time because there's thousands of novels and only a limited number of people reading at any given moment yeah and and how did you find the actual process of writing that novel compared to obviously you've been writing screenplays and things like that was it it easier or more difficult books are a lot books are a lot longer yeah yeah. <laughs> um no, I mean I found that um actually wonderful was the first thing because I was I felt really trapped by the sort of hard limits on screenplays. Now of course in retrospect I realized that you just ignore the hard limits on screenplays. You know, you just that's not you know you, you ignore the limits and everyone goes you are limit breaking you're a genius. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then and then of course they what they say that you know that the other thing that the film industry does is they go this is magnificent this is the most exciting property we've ever seen could you do us something like this, but slightly less original and in 90 pages. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, you know, um, and I mean, I'm being really unfair, right? Because I'm involved with with UK Felwood TV at the moment and I'm dealing with the most magnificent people. But my experience in the 90s was essentially people turning around saying, we really love your sample script. It's too crazy. You know, go away and write something that's completely recognisable and we can talk, you know. And could you could you in the meantime do a couple of episodes of Doctors? You know, so that we <laughs> and I just can you imagine what would happen if I wrote a couple of episodes of Doctor? You know, I mean, they would be the, the most tuned into the, episodes. The, the notorious, I don't know, London earthquake episodes. <laughs> I knew Dave Humphreys, who wrote London's Burning for years, and Dave said um, it was driving him crazy because he couldn't think of anything else to set fire to. <laughs> Um, I mean, I mean, the gone, but then you know, the Gone Away World came out, and and Angel Maker, your your second novel came out, mm. and Angel Maker, you know, they're both very well received. Angel Maker uh, won won awards; it was nominated for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. I mean, I mean, I suppose at that point, did you start to feel validation, or you know, stuff you someone you'd done on your own two feet, or you know, that kind of as much as you can take away the expectation or the, your background, etc., but just the work itself. Ah, uh, I mean, so I, I I felt good. I mean, you know, once you've written a book and people have read it and liked it, you don't feel, you know, you, you don't feel the same horror. You feel a new horror when you write a book. Yeah. You know, um, it's kind of the, the, the second book is the hardest. The third book is the hardest. The fourth book is the hardest. It's always the next one. It's always the next one that's interesting and it's always the next one that's the hardest. Um. Although then you write something like Nomon and actually that's always going to be the hardest. That was, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. We'll get to that. Um, no, I mean, so yeah, I, I wrote Gone on My World and that was like a kind of massive 
explosion i was just i was breaking loose of, of everything and i i literally put hundreds of elephants in it i've worked on a film with actual elephants in it <laughs> actually angel maker's got elephants in it that's right no but i worked on a film with an elephant and the weird thing about elephants is that they don't really they're not easy to put on film because if you if you get really close to them they're just like a big gray wall mm-hmm. and if you get further away they don't look they look unsatisfyingly small <laughs> Um, so elephants are like, I think there's, there's like a kind of, there's a deep secret about film production in the existence of elephants. The director always wants an elephant and the producer knows that the elephant is just useless. It's nothing. You can't do anything with an elephant. And, and then like the, the actor is worried because they know that if you put an elephant on the screen, it's got those deep eyes and it's like, this elephant is going to take focus off me. You know, and so they don't really necessarily want the elephant. And then the elephant wrangler knows that the elephant is shy. So it doesn't want to be on stage with the actor. And it gets worse and worse. You know, and there's like every aspect of film you can work out how it works by their reaction to the elephant. <laughs> there you go. Um, the secret to filmmaking. Secret to film is that how do you respond to the elephant? Yeah, I like it. And and you know, you say you referred to no one there, which is like I think it's fair to say a, a hugely ambitious and and complex novel, and all your novels delve into these sort of speculative worlds, have lots of ideas and things like that. But No One, as you've pointed out, is is one that stands stands head and shoulders above those. I mean, what what were you thinking first of all when you decided to try and write? So okay, I'll tell you what I was thinking. Um, I I had um, I just I'd written Tiger Man, which was. The most linear thing I'd ever written was sort of tight and, you know, thrillerish, and it takes place within, I think it's 12 days or something, the whole sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd really enjoyed that and I'd had a great time with it. And I was excited and I'd been reading a lot of magical realist stuff. Um, and um, I thought, I know. Um and I think, I, you know, I had quite young children. I think I'd spent quite a lot because my daughter was born in 2010. My son was born in 2013. I'd spent quite a lot of the time since 2010, sleep deprived and mildly insane. Mm. And I think that had kind of collected in my head into, uh, you know, with along with all the kind of weird stuff I was reading. And I was like, hey, I can do this. This will be great. Um, and at the same time, I was genuinely, I'd been submerged because my wife was working for an organization called Reprieve and they specialized in, in, um, litigating around the war on terror getting people who who shouldn't be in guantanamo out of guantanamo and indeed nobody should be in guantanamo so it was a broad target um and so i was immersed in that which obviously comes through very strongly in tiger man and i, and I was i was getting twitchy about the threads of authoritarianism that i i, I saw in the global political discussion but specifically in the uk and i thought I should write a short, pithy, magical realist assault on the idea of, of authoritarianism and surveillance and so on. And I honestly believed when I started writing Nomon that it would be shorter than Tiger Man. I thought it would be, I thought I could do it like kind of almost just beyond the length of a novella. And <laughs> that's not what happened. Oh, and it's all William Gibson's fault because he said um, uh, that he just dived into things. He just he had the idea and he didn't plan he just went in and went where the story took him i thought okay well if gibson does it i've got to try that and do it like that so two hundred thousand words later <laughs> it turns out that i'm not necessarily 
disciplined in my thought in the same way, and perhaps conceivably I should plot novels more carefully. Um, no, I mean, it was an amazing ride. It was absolutely extraordinary, and it nearly broke me. It was a huge experience of writing. I learned more from Nomon than I've learned from, well, that's not quite true. I shouldn't say from anything else, but I learned a huge amount from it. Um, and I just, I, I, all kinds of things that I'd sort of previously believed in as absolute truth just had to go to the wall. The most obvious one of which was, was um, I believed that you should write from the beginning of a book to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that each, that when you wrote a given scene for the first time, there was a special magic, if you know, that came from that. And you, you shouldn't waste it by prejudging how the scene was going to come, you know, before you got to it. You know, you needed to come to it the way the characters did. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's precious. You know, <laughs> I, I'm just kind of like, oh, that is nasty. I mean, you know, no, if you can do it that way consistently and if you produce the results, if you're happy that way, that's great. But first of all, the magic is there the first time you write it, whether it, it's in sequence or not. And second, one of the things that I realized after writing a really convoluted book is that you need the way stations. Those scenes that you think are sacred are the scenes that you write and they tell you, you write them and lock them mm-hmm. as far as you can. And they tell you what the rest of the book has to do. Whenever someone has a conversation about the difficult middle chapters, great, write the end, then write the beginning. And yeah. now you know the two ends. You know yeah. what the middle's got to do. So yeah. draw the line between them. I mean, it's not that simple, but the, the number of things that I put in my own way that slowed me down when I was writing that book. And that's the first one that comes into my head every time is, no, just write the scene that you want and then engineer the rest of it to get there. That's, you know. But but does does writing, I, I mean, I can see I can see what you're saying there in terms of how that might help, but does writing that way sometimes give your, give your future self problems if you're, if you're, you know, you've got scenes that you've written ahead and then you're like, oh, wait, how can this work? You know, try to get everything well, I, fit together and I mean, all of that sort of thing then you might have to change them, you know, and that's not terrible either. You know, they get better when you rewrite them, not worse. Um, So, you know, but I just, I had all this stuff that I was carrying around that I thought was the proper way of doing it. And, you know, and I suspect that I subconsciously believed was how dad did it. Although actually I never really knew what that, I mean, I knew what some of his process looked like, but obviously, you know, I don't know what goes on, what went on in his office. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I just kind of, I just sort of made it up. I was like, oh, I know how to do this. Um, and actually, obviously, when you start, you don't know how to do it. You know something. You know enough. And what I knew from screenwriting was that I could finish a story. You know that, and that's really useful. Right? If you know that, mm-hmm. that's great. And then if you know, you know, if you've written anything that's long, if you've written a thesis or a, you know, long form nonfiction, anything like that, you know that you can do it. That's hugely helpful. That's the biggest biggest advantage there is. You know, and if you know that if you take you just just do the mathematics. If you if you write two thousand words a day for thirty days, ninety days, you know, mm-hmm. you you you'll get there. It's not, you know, it, 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 one of the great things about NaNoWriMo is that it's, you know, in a sense a mathematical operation. If you write a given number of words a day, you will get to 55, 65, 75,000 words, and that's a book. Now, it might be a terrible book, but that's fine. That's what editing's for, you know. Yeah. So, you know, um, but no one, I just, lots of things had to happen. And yes, I made problems for myself and then I fixed them, 
what I discovered about that was that I had these interlocking narratives, each of which depended on the other. So every time I tried to write it from beginning to end, it was like trying to solve an equation with none of the variables. Yeah. Uh Um, And so it kept on locking and falling apart. And I did that thing that people do in films where you get like red string and you get close (laughs) and you, you, and I tried to do the timelines and look, and I was like, okay, well, this is great because where they overlap, they will cross and I can put the the text of the crossover there and then I'll know, and then I can move and I can see, like I I can have a visual physical representation of the complexity of this novel. So basically I generated like a serial killer nest in my office (laughs) with photographs and notes and so on. And the first thing I have to say is that it in no way enlightened me as to what was going on in the book. The visual representation, not helpful. The second thing that happened was that the string got so heavy that it pulled the blue tack off the wall (laughs) and the entire structure (laughs) fell onto the floor where it was obviously in a mess which is basically was also illustrated. Yeah, exactly. I have come to the conclusion, I have two two takeaways from this. First thing is that serial killers do not make those nests. They become serial killers because they try to write a novel (laughs) and that was what happened to them. And the second thing, which is arguably um, more important, I have, of course, forgotten. Hang on. Oh, yeah. Until that moment, until writing Nomon, I had also believed that you had to hold the entirety of a book in your head at any given time in order to write it. You had to have the whole thing and then you all of that would play into any given scene you were writing. So you'd write the scene in fullest knowledge of the plot. It's got a godlike. And with Nomon, that was not possible. I could not contain it all at the time. I could have a sort of vague instinctive sense at any moment, but I had to deal with scenes as if they were complete and trust that the overarching plotting that I'd done earlier and what I'd set myself, what this scene has to do, was accurate. So it was a much more of a mosaic process than I normally do. Um, and it was uh, that was fascinating and kind of terrifying. And I think it works. Um, I think all of it hangs together. There are a couple of places where, where I feel the scenes are slightly rough, and I, I should have caught that, but the edit was so enormous that we didn't. Um, but I think all the moving parts work, which is kind of extraordinary. And it really was more like designing an engine or more like how I imagined designing an engine would be than writing a book um, or did writing you, the books that I had written. Did you send William Gibson a thank you note for telling you to start in that way? Then uh, I have blamed him repeatedly uh, <laughs> on, on social media and elsewhere. Um, it, he is, as it turns out, a very nice man, and therefore um, it, he he uh, laughs at me and um, uh, you know sort of generally approves. So, no, he's he's lovely, and it's one of the kind of weird um, kind of things that in in my life that you know uh, here is this guy who my sort of sixteen year old self essentially regarded as as sort of the greatest creator of anything, um, and now we have cake. <laughs> and and so has your has your writing uh, process has it has it remained you know obviously it kind of hit this no one point and it changed and then is it, have you kept it up is that still your process now or no it's completely different now okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the so um having written no um i didn't want to do it that way anymore because it was maddening um and uh i i sort of i sprained my pineal gland um so i um 
the next thing that happened was that as I was completing Nomon, um, the, and it literally I'd submitted the book to my publisher and the Brexit vote happened. And I was in a reasonably diff- reasonably fraught state anyway, for various reasons, p- partly because I'd just finished Nomon. Um, and um, I went absolutely nuts. I was so angry. Uh, I just... Uh, and I was particularly angry because the form that my anger took was to be very creative. And that was one of the things that Nigel Ferrara said would happen. He said that we would be spurred to great creativity by Brexit. <laughs> and that made me even angrier because it was clearly such nonsense. And yet I was doing it. And that, I was just, ah! um, And so I wrote in the space of a very short time, the first Aidan Truen novel, mm-hmm. um, The Price You Pay, uh, and I, I, uh, it, it, it's absolutely the most violent, bizarre, twisted book I've ever written, except possibly the second Aidan Truen novel. Um, and I wrote it in a very linear way. And that's a book. I mean, this is the other thing that I learned is that what the way that you write a book can really hinge on what kind of book it is. So I wrote Nomon and learned all kinds of tricksy convoluted styles and not keeping the book all in your head at the time and whatever and uh, and then I came out of it uh, and I, I found myself writing The Price You Pay which is a book you can hold in your head and is a book you can write in a completely linear way and indeed you know it basically one thing happens at the beginning which builds up all this kind of narrative potential energy and then you flick the rock off the top of the mountain and just everything cascades down to the bottom and that's it it's a very simple storyline in very much in the line of something like I, the jury, which indeed I was reading over and over again in between writing the price you pay. Um, you know, but that's because, you know, here is a guy who is essentially a bit bonkers, but broadly speaking, a nonviolent white collar criminal cocaine dealer in the US who finds out that the most, the seven most awful people in the world have been hired to kill him. And his immediate reaction because his fundamental identity is that he is somebody who immediately recognizes the rules of engagement. His immediate reaction is, wow, this is fantastic. Now I can do all the horrible arch villain stuff <laughs> that I've always dreamed about doing, but couldn't do because that would be totally unreasonable. Um, and so, he's, because now he's in a battle for survival with the seven most terrible people on earth. So he can do awful things because the alternative is just that they wipe him out. There's no, so there are no longer any limits. Um, and indeed, he basically acknowledges none and does terrible things to them, um, you know, and um, it's quite interesting. In the second Jack Price book, one of the questions is, you know, because people ask me, you know, is he a psychopath? I know he's not a psychopath. He, what he does is the thing that we can't do, most of us, is that he recognizes exactly perfectly what rules the rest of the world is playing by. And then he acknowledges those rules. I'm terrible at that. I never understand what rules other people are playing by. Um, you know, and and I think, you know, very often we misunderstand in, in sort of social and broader political context what, what the other side or the other sides are doing. Yeah. Um, and we get stitched up like a kipper. Um, and he's not that person. You know, the, the thing about Jack is that if you're scrupulously polite and law-abiding, you can interact with him endlessly and he will be exactly the same. If you try to kill him, he will try to kill you back. And he has absolutely no intervening. There's no adjustment time at all. He's like, oh, are we doing this now? Yeah. You know, which I mean, so that's not 
that's not psychopathy. That's something completely different and arguably more terrifying. <laughs> and and with those books, was it always the intention that you wanted to write them under a different name because they were a sort of that sort of happened because they're so mad. Um, mm -hmm. And and so and my um, my UK publisher, they just looked at them and they're like, "What is this? You know, this is crazy." And it, you you know, and you've written it now, so now we've got two books by you, and da -da, and it just didn't work for them. Um, and so, uh, in order to um, uh, bring them out here, at the, you know, sort of in a timely fashion, um, or at all actually, um, I went to uh, Serpent's Tale. Um, and, and we agreed that I'd publish under a different name. Um, uh, and Aidan Truen is an anagram of Diana Hunter. Um, Diana Hunter being the pulp novelist, literary novelist, uh, character, antagonist, protagonist, whatever, in Gnomon. Yeah. Um, and so there's a kind of slightly tenuous literary gag there, because the idea is that you can go online, unscramble the anagram and discover that there are indeed books by this person. Um, and because no one is a kind of shifting realities joke, that's, you know, and I, I almost, almost published them as Diana Hunter. Um, but the, Har the Harkaway multiverse. The Harkaway multiverse, exactly. <laughs> um, and I, and so the, the book in, in, um, no one, her book, her, one of her books is called Mr. Murder Investigates. And we nearly called the price you pay, Mister Mister Murder Investigates, but it's not a very good title for the for the for, for the price you pay. So we didn't. Well, your latest novel is uh, Titanium Noir, uh, which is just out. Um, yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the book's about? So that is, yeah, that's my first new Nick Harkaway novel since uh, No One came out because I've had the stuff in between, um, and it is. Uh, a, a noir story with a science fiction twist or a science fiction detective story depending on how you want to look at it um, uh, and it is about a detective in a noirish city uh, who is called in to solve the murder of a titan and titans are uh, normally speaking the very very rich who have taken a drug called T7 which makes you young again but also makes you 20% bigger physically bigger um, so each time you take it, you you get cumulatively larger. And that means that by the time you've taken it three or four times, you're 14 foot tall or something. Um, and there's a, there's a, well, no, we'll get to that. Um, so, uh, and but this guy, this particular Titan doesn't seem to be that person at all. He seems to be, he's living in an ordinary flat. Um, so there's something going on. And it's obviously, I mean, it's huge fun. I had a great time writing this, um, sort of working in that, uh, mm -hmm. that, Philip Marlowe, either jury, kind of all these, you know, sort of uh, in that space, um, and sort of, uh, you know, yes, absolutely, kind of uh, enjoying the 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 Blade Runners and the Neuromancers and those, you know, those kind of crossover spaces that have gone before, but also kind of doing my own thing, um, and it's huge fun, uh, yeah. And so, obviously, inevitably, this this perfectly simple ordinary murder takes you into the dark history of the world and and uh, the shadows of of the noir universe so it's it's um it's fun and and uh, i'm hoping there'll be more uh, well i was going to ask about that because i'm reading it now and i'm really enjoying it and it it did strike me as a book that would be fun to write just to write in that voice the voice of of mm -hmm. cal and and um so so you do have plans then to hopefully revisit that world then 
I do. I do indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and, and uh, I, so far, everybody seems to think that's a good idea. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's the moment when someone comes along and goes, this is a terrible book. And they're like, no, OK, well, I'm not writing anymore. Um, <laughs> but but as, I mean, because, you know, that's obviously that, that's obviously the, the, the moment. You, it doesn't matter how many people tell you they love the book. When someone tells you it's terrible, that's that's when you <laughs> love it. it's the only comment that ever matters again. Right? <laughs> Um, this is why I genuinely don't read reviews anymore, because if you believe the good ones, then somebody will show you a bad one and you'll believe that. And it doesn't matter how many good ones there were, because you only believe the bad one. Yeah. Um, and it's taken me, whatever it is, since 2007, is it? 2007, 2008, to get to that point where I genuinely do not have to read them. I can get the little Google alert and to go, oh, somebody else has reviewed the book. Marvellous. And not click the link. Well, that is self-control. It's, I mean, and genuinely, the most dangerous people in this regard are your friends because they'll ring you up and go, oh, yeah. there's a great review. Just let me read you a little bit of it. And you're like, <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> you know, and then and people will also ring you up and go, oh, I was so angry. I saw that review in the, and it was awful and they were so unkind about you. And, you know, you've got stupid eyebrows. And you're just kind of like, don't tell me that. <laughs> My self-esteem is plummeting with every second we spend on this call. I mean, I mean, all of your books, I think, are, uh, you know, you're speculative, but they address uh, current issues. Um, yeah. You know, No One's Got Surveillance. Um, Tatiana Noir's got this kind of separation between elites and the rest of the population and society. And, and I wondered, is that something which is important to you, you know, exploring these ideas in fiction? And is there a kind of catharsis in, in letting these characters have these arguments that you have with people or you think in your head, etc.? The the only books that I've ever written that were, well the only book that I've ever written that was cathartic was the price you pay mm-hmm. even even Seven Demons the the sequel to that uh, wasn't catharsis that was just I mean Seven Demons just kind of twisted love note to Switzerland uh, you know I just uh, I, it's, it's one of those things where you know you send someone a bouquet of flowers and realize that they're never going to talk to you again you know <laughs> um, I, I'm absolutely terrified that somebody in the Swiss government will read that book and just put me on a list be just like no <laughs> you're just there is something wrong with you and you're not coming into the country and frankly they could not possibly possibly be blamed for that um it, it is the most uh, you know it, it's one of those things where you write an adams family kind of value inversion gag and realize that you know <laughs> not everyone's <laughs> going to realize there's value inversion going on um no I, I, I it's more it's not even that it's important to me to look at issues it's that i can't not i mean it's that thing if your book's really about what your book's about then you're in real trouble you know, if 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 what it's about on the surface is just is the only thing it's about, then, you know, in the end, nobody's going to read it. Mm. You know, even if, you know, if you write a book and it's ostensibly about espionage, but what it's actually about is friendship, that's fine. You know, um, but if you write something and it's just about what it seems to be about, in the end, I think people will drift away. But again, it's not conscious for me. It's just those are the things that are worth writing about. You know, I started writing Titanium Noir and I was like, I want to do something, you know, noirish, atmospheric, enjoyable, kinetic. I want it to have kind of rich, sort of, you know, shady colours. And I want people to be drawn into this kind of slightly, I want to say, not really gothic, but you know, there's a kind of there's a physical viscerality to that mm-hmm. to that style of writing which I really wanted. Yeah. Um, as opposed to an emotional viscerality. Honestly, what am I doing? Anyway, um, so um uh you know, but but without even 
choosing it very very quickly i mean and you know in fairness those but those original noir stories you know they're about power and violence yeah. and betrayal and money and greed and appetite and as soon as you start talking about power violence money and appetite you know you're telling a story like this one way or another you know the metaphor may sneak up on you it didn't you know it, it, I'm not aware, I can't remember at what point I began to realise that there might be a metaphorical component to having the very, very rich get physically enormous and all the good things in the world roll downhill into their grip and everyone else is like on the kind of dry, arid peak of of uh, sort of, you know, normal life. Um, you know, that kind of, I want to say that came as a surprise to me. It didn't, but... I'm not sure that I ever made a, a, a conscious decision to do that. Just that emerged from the process of coming up with this idea. The whole thing hangs together. And I think from my perspective, it's it's a single piece. As I look at it, there must have been a moment where I was just doing this. Yeah. But very early on, it became something about... But, you know, because... I. First of all, just, you know, thinking of the classic noirs, they, you know, Marlowe goes, or, you know, not Marlowe particularly, because that's more hardball crime, but, you know, these characters interact with the very powerful mm-hmm. and the powerful who can squash them like a bug and yet, you know, over whom they hold sway by dint of knowledge and so on. There's a constant tension. And, you know, whenever a de- detective or an investigator of any kind is investigating something in in that sh- shadowy universe the risk is that they'll find out something for which they need to be crushed mm-hmm. you know yeah. um and there's always the kind of moment you know of will you take the payoff or will you get murdered and you know in noir very often they take the payoff and just walk away you know it's because obviously it's kind of everything is very essentially very bleak and motivations yeah. don't you know and i had this i had this dialogue with myself like does this really count as noir because actually Al sounder has quite a good heart you know, um, and traditionally, I mean, traditionally, conventionally, noir characters, you know, are are bitterer than that, more conflicted than that. Um, but, you know, um, watch and see where it goes. And and so, I mean, when you're, you know, when you're starting out on a new project, what what comes first to you? What is it? Is it is it like, was it, I want to write a noir type novel was that the first thought or did you have the idea of cow or was it this metaphor what 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 came first or did they all sort of floating in there and suddenly it all comes together one day and then you start writing sometimes i can answer that question with with angel maker i can tell you that i was in a cafe and i saw a broken clockwork toy on the table and there was a child playing with it the next table and when they left, they left the clockwork toy behind. And I said, do you want this? You know, because it was just like, you know, one of those things with a wind up clockwork motor and it's basically made of paper clips. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not quite out of a cracker, but they're three quid off a barrow. Yeah. Um, and um, child said, no, 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 you know, kind of it's broken. I don't want it. And mum was like, mm, fine. And I, for me, it was like holding the Holy Grail. I was holding this thing in my hands and Angel Maker just happened in my head. Um, and, I, you know, it was about, clockwork and things that clockwork devices that make the world a better place and then that collided with my kind of sort of the notion that i'd had in my head anyway of some kind of um story involving a terrifying old woman who was basically miss marple with a handgun and then with a kind of desire to do a london gangster story and that was it we were away right 
Um, with Titanium Noir, I don't know. I think it feels to me like it just came out of nowhere. Um, I wanted to do um, a story, you know, f- and I just, the disparate parts of it just meshed and I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, I think almost it's going to sound kind of weirdly counterintuitive, but actually for me, a lot of the time, it's not a textual thing at all. The, the germ of a novel is a feeling, a mood. And then as you write into that space, you realize that you've already got ideas, concepts, characters emerge from those or concepts emerge from the characters that's all very bound together. But the the first thing isn't even a word. It's a inexpressible mood music. And you then your actual job is to take, have you seen the Randall Monroe cartoon about waking up in the morning and trying to describe your dreams? I don't think I have, no. Oh, it's unbelievably good. I mean, it's just, it's that moment which we've all had where you get out of bed and in the kind of thought bubble, there's airships and biplanes fighting one another and cities of crystal and glass and dinosaurs and pterodactyls and, um, you know, kind of trimaran pirate ships on the ocean. Everything's going on. And he goes running downstairs to tell everybody and by the time he gets down the stairs, the thought bubble's just slowly erased mm-hmm. until it's completely empty. And he's just like, I've got nothing. <laughs> and the caption is every damn morning. <laughs> and it's just the most perfect statement of that moment. And so for me, I think I have, I get a sense of something that should contain all of those things in Randall Munro's thought bubble, you know, whatever they are these mystical, amazing things. And the job then is to take that sense and hold on to it through the process of turning it into text. Yeah. And and I always find it frustrating when people talk about um, having difficulty kind of realizing ideas and, and so on as if, as if there's a pure form mm-hmm. um, because you know, there isn't that, that the books happen, stories happen, film scripts happen in the process of of text encountering ideas. There isn't, there's, there's nothing behind the curtain. You can't pull the veil aside and it's all there written for you. It's in the encounter between that moment of mood, that idea and the process of turning it into text that books are generated. So you can't get it wrong. You can only not match the mood the way you want it to or something I, it, but anyway you know so for me it's that it's it's there's a kind of moment where i know what it's all about and i have to hold on to that and actually sometimes i'll take a single paragraph that i write that's the first thing that i ever write but it's somehow expressive and tape it up above the above mm-hmm. the um computer so i can look up at it and go that that and nothing else you know if in doubt does it work with that no then it's gone yeah. Does it does it pursue that? Yes, fine, it's in. You, you you can when you when you have these ideas or when they germinate in your head, they in your head you're just like this is this is it, this is brilliant. It's nebulous, but, though. Yeah, but as you say, it's like that. It's like that cartoon to then suddenly try and describe it or write it or something. It, it becomes 
you realise it's a much mm-hmm. bigger task than you think it you think but, it's going to but be. But that, if you can hold on to it, then it, that's when and, you can get something. And I suppose it. you're right in the sense that the only person who knows the difference is you. No one else knows what the ultimate target was in your head. You know, all yeah. they see is the finished product. So uh, it's not like they read it and think oh, it was good, but it wasn't as good as the, the idea you had in your head. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. well, but also, yeah, that's like right. the idea you have in your head is just that. It's non-verbal. It's just yeah. an idea. It's only a concept. It's only a this. It's only a that. You know, you, you, the 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 business is about teasing it out and making it into something. Um, you know, and you mustn't. I think it's really interesting, actually. I think maybe one of the most important things about writing. Here we go. I've never said this out loud before. It may be nonsense. I think maybe one of the most important things is, is acknowledging to yourself that the idea isn't a book. The idea isn't the thing that you're going to end up with. The idea is just the 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 compass needle and you have to walk the road there we go god blimey no i like that i like it no absolutely i'm going to use that tomorrow um (laughs) uh yeah you know seriously i think it's very easy to tie yourself in knots when you're writing so you somehow you feel like you kind of you know you're getting it wrong and you can be but only in the sense that you're not telling the story that you want to tell um, and then you have to make a decision, like, is the story that I want to tell the right story or is the reason that I'm telling this story instead because this is the real story, this is the better one, yeah. and the idea wasn't great, but now I'm doing something? Or have I gone off track because I've let it get let it collide with another idea that I actually want and that should be over here and then just separate them, you know, and, and go back to where I was? And the thing that I find is that there is usually, quite early on, a paragraph that tells you everything you need to know about the book that it that contains enough of that thought bubble that if you, that you can test it against what you're writing mm-hmm. and and if it doesn't match and you're not happy with the mismatch you bin what you've got and start again and one of the great things about writing quickly that's the other thing i used to write quite slowly um and now i try to write as quickly as i write as quickly as i am because if you write quickly and it goes wrong you go oh okay i'm back to the beginning of the month that's it you know, and you go back and you just junk it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. It doesn't cost you really anything. It's 10 days, you know, whatever. Um, if you write really slowly and you're taking pains over the text and having a wonderful time with it, and then you realize you've made a wrong turn three months ago, six months ago, that's yeah. a disaster. Yeah. You know, um, so I really like writing at speed and jumping ahead and then coming back because then you can always kind of go, this was right, but the execution is rubbish. And that's fine. I'll work with that. Or you go, I've gone astray, but it's only going to cost me a couple of days. Let's go back to here. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. what, what does that mean in terms of, like, drafts? So if, you, if you're writing quickly, presumably you get a first draft done fairly quickly. What are you, is it, how clean is it? Do you revise as you go or do you just get into the end of that first draft and then... So the discipline is, yeah, the discipline is not to revise too much as you go. I find that really hard. I can very easily get stuck um, revising a single scene over and over again if I let myself, and so I don't. So, I mean, I wrote the first draft of The Price You Pay in 27 days, I think. Um, And... You know, and no, it wasn't clean. You know, there was a, there was a, there was a next draft which was longer and had a different ending, and everything was tied together much better, and so on. Um, uh, very difficult to say how long Titanium Noir took because I wrote a bunch of it in November, 
2020. Uh, and then uh, pretty much everything in my life became complicated. I mean, you know, it was 2020. So pretty much everyone in everything's life became pretty complicated. But mine was no exception. So uh, then I had to do I did this extraordinary thing where I edited. Edited is the wrong word. Uh, I did the final pass on my dad's last novel, Silverview, for publication. Um, and he so he had a delivery draft, but not a publication draft. And there's you know quite a big difference between the two. Um, but we had to do it, you know, very gently, you know, so there couldn't actually be when he was writing, he was notorious for kind of, you know, the book would be virtually going to press and he'd be like, I'm just changing this scene and and his publisher would be going nuts. And obviously we couldn't, you know, we didn't want to do that. Couldn't do that. Didn't want to change the book very much, but at the same time, you know, you had to go through it and find the places where the sentences didn't join together, which were, you know, hands up very rare, but, you know, so that was an odd beautiful thing to do but it, it took a piece out of my um writing time and then I, so then I was um uh I had to sort of finish it off after doing that and come back to it and rewrite and so on so you know it, it, all told I think it probably took six months to get the first draft but you know that was a an elongated process um yeah so but it, it you know it's it's there it is yeah absolutely and I have to ask you, um, you talked before, I think, about wanting to write a, a Star Wars film. Is that something you still quite like to do? Yes. Dave Filoni, <laughs> are you listening? Yeah, 100%. And I've always known what it was. Uh, you know, it's a film or a TV show. I know exactly. I actually have two, but there's one that I like much more than the other, which I think is, you know, which is more interesting. But the, and also it's it's relevant now, whereas the, the, um, the first idea that I had um, when I was however young was... Um, was relevant to making sequels after yeah. Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no longer makes sense. Well, I mean, you know, it still makes sense, but it's no longer as whatever. But And then a couple of years later, I was like, oh, you know, what about this? Um, and th- that second one is an absolute zinger. Um, and I, I desperately, I don't really care if I write it, actually. I want somebody to write it, and I, I would I would do it. Um, uh, and it'd be huge fun. So, yeah, no, I definitely want to do that. But, I, you know, I want to play in all those all those extraordinary vineyards or whatever what would you gardens jungles i don't know what you call them anyway um sandboxes yeah sandboxes thank you god yeah not vineyards anyway uh you can see where my mind's at it's it's half plus five i'm like oh hello um yeah no uh uh playing those sandboxes exactly um uh you know because they're extraordinary the thing about those shared universes is that they've acquired depth over an extraordinary amount of time. Yeah. And, and the consequence of that is that you can do really extraordinary things with them. I saw the, I can't remember what they're called, Jedi Tales, I think, little short pieces of animation, mm-hmm. um, six of them, with, with some of them are about Count Dooku, some of them are about, I want to say Ahsoka. Yeah, Ahsoka, I think there was one about Ahsoka. Yeah. Um, and there, um, yes, yeah, oh my God. And the last one is an absolute gut punch. They're unbelievable and they, they're interlinked stories, but you don't realize how seriously you're being set up. But my God, I was like, oh, that hurts. <laughs> that is a piece of storytelling. And you know, and you can do that because you've got, it's like, I get very irate when people say that The Godfather 2 is better than Godfather 1. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's a fantastic movie. It does have quite a long prologue. Yeah, you know, yes. where where you set up the world and you meet all these extraordinary characters and you care about them in the first place. You can watch it without, but that doesn't mean it was written sui generis. You know, it's it's what it mm. is. Um, 
Uh, and I actually, you know, for what it's worth, I also prefer um, the first Godfather movie and I prefer the first Star Wars movie. Not because Empire's not brilliant. It's clearly the best one. But I still, you know, but again, it's the best one because it's got an yeah. hour and a half prologue. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and incidentally, I I love the new ones. I'm I'm um, absolutely sold on them. Uh, not not so much the the first new ones, but the new new ones. Yeah, uh, the Andor TV series in particular was amazing. Andor's great. Yeah, it's really good. Well, and I, you know, I mean, uh, I, I inevitably see uh, connections with with uh, the Lacare universe, which perhaps mm-hmm. you know is is a family trait that I would see those. But I do, and you know, and I think. And I think that's uh, first of all. I think Andor is a thing unto itself. It, you know, it doesn't. It's not that it's it's derivative of that, but I just think it has you know that that in its mm. in its makeup. And I think that that does both of them favors. I think it's great. You know, uh, but no, I was watching Andor, and there's a moment when they go underwater. They're kind of scubaing into the thing, and completely without reason, really, just because it's amazing. They show us the underwater thing, and you think, you know, you're familiar with all those kind of moments where something underwater eats someone in the star wars franchise and you think that might happen and then it doesn't they're just showing it to you because it's gorgeous yeah. and because it's part of the story and you're like, oh yeah this is its own thing but you know, somehow for me that was the moment when i was like oh no they're not messing around here this is a this is a a, a thing unto itself mm-hmm. i'm worried about season two i heard a rumor that it oh not a rumor i think it's known to be true that that it takes us into the last three days before rogue one and yeah, I'm, I'm, well, kind of yeah. like, I'm, I'm a bit twitchy about that. But, you know, you have to trust people because that first season was really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Titanium Noir is just out. You possibly, hopefully revisit that, that world. I mean, what, what, have, what have you got in the pipeline? You said you were working with TV as well. You may not be able to tell us any of this. Things, yeah, things I can't talk about. One on a list of basically one. Yeah, um, yeah I am. Um, but... Um, I mean, Stanley Noir. Yes, I want. I, I want to do more Cal Sanders stories. That's and and I want to take the universe wider. I want to see more of the place. I want to explore the the critique a little bit more. You know, obviously, Titanium Noir is a short book. Um, it's not like a known one, so you can't get you know you can't get deep into the social fabric. What you can do if you're writing more stories is build the social fabric, build the reality of the world the issues you want to raise as a mosaic so that it's never intrusive. You know, it's only there if you want it. Um, but it's, you know, but it's, it's storytelling and it's, uh, you know, and it's common. And that's, I think that's, that's fun. Um, as we learn more about the Titans, you know, so we have to learn more about the, the problems that they make because, you know, inevitably, I mean, I said, you know, uh, I said it when I think earlier on, you know, the thing is that in that world, um, <laughs> which is not a million miles from ours in this way, money flows downhill. Yeah. And downhill in this context is into a giant pit, which is, you know, the the the, the downward slant of the terrain is caused by the Titans, by their their economic social weight in the world. Um, you know, and everybody else is on dry land and all, you know, and everything and everything else flows, all the good things flow downhill towards them. Um and uh, yeah, and, and there are consequences to that. Inevitably, there must be. And then you know, in in kind of if I want to go there, there are interesting things to discuss about how you know what what happens as you keep taking T seven. There are consequences yeah. to that too, because you know the cube law applies. The human 
um, circulatory system is not designed to deal with that. So, you know, there's there's a sell by date on how many times you can you can take the drug. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Well, I, I certainly hope to to read more more uh, stories in that in that world. <laughs> last book that you read what was the last book that i read um i am reading uh naomi alderman's new one which doesn't come out until the autumn uh i have just bought danube All right. um which is about the austro-hungarian empire go figure um uh i loved ring shout um was I'm trying to think what the last thing I I because in between Ring Shout and Naomi's book I started something and I don't know what it was um which is terrible there we go that's that's <laughs> that's the best I can do at the moment that's fine uh, what about the last film that you watched uh Quantumania no any good uh, which which I enjoyed I have to say there's there's been a lot of grousing about it I had yeah. fun cool. Uh, and the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Uh, oh, hang on. I watched something wonderful. Uh, I've lost track of it. Okay, so in various different layers, um, uh, we, uh, my wife and I are watching Citadel for a giggle, mm -hmm. which is fun. Um, uh, my children are watching The Owl House, which is unbelievably awesome and i've just watched the episode where um Ida comes to term with the owl beast comes to terms with the owl beast and it's one of the best things i've seen it's just a beautiful piece of animation it's really really clever really great storytelling uh i'm slightly blown away i tell you what a lot of the writing for tv and for for all those um marvel shows and for a lot of animated films and uh, animated tv and and uh sort of assorted franchises is much much better than i not than you would expect because we're coming to expect that it should be very high quality but it's just very very yeah. good mm -hmm. and you know whether you think that's because you know the sort of the franchises are sucking in all the talent you know or, or whether you just think that those are well, i think that's obviously true but i think those those ideas as i said they build up intensity and depth over time and if you mine them properly you produce extraordinary narratives it doesn't matter that they're franchises um i just think some of the stuff is very good and again um i watched something in uh a not english language recently and i cannot for the life remember, remember what it was and it was brilliant ah uh, uh, i'm gonna say despot uh although that was a bit longer ago the the yeah, u-boat drama was extraordinary um, but there is something else, and again, I can't remember. I, I'm very flaky at the moment, and terribly bad at remembering what's amazing. But I do keep a list somewhere. <laughs> have you Have you watched? Um, just speaking about great animated shows, have you watched Arcane on Netflix? I haven't. I just saw a thing saying how amazing it was, and I was like, "Oh it's yes, I must do good. that." Yeah, it's very good. I think the new season's coming out in a few months, but yeah, it's definitely worth catching. Okay, no, I, I'm I'm completely sold. Actually, I I saw that, and I was like, "Oh yeah, no, that looks like a thing for me." Uh, the very, very last thing we do is a, is a super quick fire, either or. And I suppose I say there's no right answer apart from perhaps one of them. But we'll start off with William Gibson or Philip K. Dick. <laughs> what, what am I doing? Am I having lunch or, or am I reading? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Having lunch. Um, I mean, always Bill. 
Um, he's just a genuinely nice man. I, I'd, I'd, uh, I mean, obviously, and Philip K. Dick is also dead, which makes him. <laughs> yeah. Lunch with him. I mean, I would, I would, I would love. It's one of those things, isn't it? You know, you think, oh, it'd be great to have lunch with Philip K. Dick, or oh, it'd be great to have lunch with Hunter Thompson. You're like, actually, it might not. It might be <laughs> yeah, awful. Exactly. <laughs> you know, um, no, uh, definitely Bill. Um, TV or cinema? Uh, what's the difference? Oh, well, that's a good question. I suppose the experience of watching a film in cinema or sitting at home on your, on your couch. I think they both. I think they belong in in their different spaces. I really do, and I think the overlap in talent now is so enormous that it's less of a question than it ever was. Yeah. Um, uh, if you make me choose at the moment, I'll take TV only because the long form is amazing mm-hmm. and you can do this extraordinary stuff. But I love, I love the cinema. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Oh my God, do I have to be one or the other? I'm neither. <laughs> I sleep. I love sleep. <laughs> uh, uh, so when I was younger, Night Owl every time. Um, and I used to do the bulk of my writing late. Now I have kids. I wake up in the morning at um, sometime around six uh, and I have a day to to get through, you know, so that it's yeah. just rationally, it's just much better. And I do, uh, uh, but I always made a promise to myself that I would write where and when it was useful to write, not on some mystical schedule. I don't like mystical um, sort of claims about writing because I, I feel like they, they shut people out. Um uh, so, uh, and screenwriters obviously have to be able to write on set, in hotel rooms, under the bar, wherever you've been asked mm-hmm. to write. And so that was the discipline I set myself then, and I've kept it up now. So I wrote, um, I, I edited the last chapters of Angel Maker in the hospital while I was, well, while my daughter was being born. I, you know, you write where you write and you write when you write. It doesn't matter. Cool. And uh, music or no music when you're writing? Oh, good call. Both. Uh, but, but I mean, I, I will use music, uh, which I, I'm aware some people find difficult. Generally, it has to be without lyrics or lyrics I know very well. Mm-hmm. I use it as a mood setter. I use it to kickstart when I don't feel like writing, but I know I've got to. Um, music is useful. Um, and uh, at the moment, I'm, uh, I'm. we've just started sharing office, me and my wife, um, and I'm going to have to get headphones because she absolutely <laughs> will not have music while she's working. <laughs> uh, and the last one, audiobook or ebook? Ooh, controversial. Um, I will say audiobook, and I will also say that I love ebooks and they have really great use cases. Um, but I think we won't see ebooks reach their full potential until someone builds a beautiful ebook reader. Okay. Nice. What 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 would your ideal ebook reader look like? Everybody wants the same beautiful ebook reader. You want a magic book that feels like a paper book, smells like a paper book, doesn't weigh anything. And when you get to the end, you close it and then you open it again. It's a different book. A different book. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah, and you want this, you want, you want the magic physical book experience with every single book in existence. Ideally, it should probably look like that. Um, uh, and hang on. Yeah. It's a gold, gold spine. Um, and, and it should magically transform into the next book you want to read. Um, you know, uh, or, or yeah. you know, uh, but, but those are hard to build. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I would I would love to see his version of a Star Wars movie. I know, it'd be incredible. It sounds like he has a couple of great ideas there. So yeah, it, it, as he said, Dave Filoni, if you are listening, uh, 
get Nick involved. And also, if you are listening, come on our podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, I mean, how the hell do you find this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, thanks very much to Nick for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, he's an author that I've always enjoyed reading and a really interesting guy and great insight into the process mm-hmm. of his writing there. Yep. Um, so I would highly recommend picking up Titanium Noir if if it sounded good to you. And if not, if you've not read Nomon and you feel like a, a bit of I a challenge. I have Nomon on my TBR shelf. Well, yeah, it's I've, definitely I've, worth reading. Read, definitely I worth need reading. to read. I know it's, yeah. it sounds fantastic. Um, but next week we've got another great guest. Yeah, next week we're chatting with the awesome Cole Haddon, whose latest book, well, first book, I should say, is Sam's For the End of the World, um, which uh, came out end of last year in hardback and has just come out paperback in May this year, um, is a really kind of crazy, you know, lots of different small stories. Yeah, it's another kind of hugely ambitious this, book, actually, oh, crazy, after speaking yeah, about no one, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of halfway through it and really enjoying it. It's it's great. And he's also done, he developed the Dracula show for NBC starring Jonathan, is it Jonathan Rhys-Mayers? Yeah. Is that his name? Yeah. Um, which is a kind of, he has a really great bunch of articles online about his disastrous time making it. So it's a really interesting behind the scenes look into network TV show. And it's a really fun chat we have with him. Yeah, so whether you're into, into novel writing or screenwriting, um he has information and great insight into both both of those mm-hmm. skills. So, uh, yeah, please do tune in for that one. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do take the time to rate and review us on your favourite podcast app. And, of course, if you want to get in touch, you can always uh, drop us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at UK page one, or you can send us an email, which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk, or you can go via Mastodon, which is writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod, or of course we have our YouTube channel, which is at um, page one podcast. Damn, at page almost, one podcast. I was you almost doing did so it. Well. I, was I, like, I know, I the, thought, the, oh God, he's even going for the YouTube. He's going to do this. Yeah. No. <laughs> No, nearly, nearly. I'm going to make you do this at the live show. I hope you know that. Oh, I'm going to have to write it down <laughs> word for word. <laughs> uh, cool. But otherwise, have a great week and we will speak to you next episode. See you later.